Hey, pastors and leaders of multi-ethnic churches or organizations, my name is Greg. I'm the pastor of Renew Church in Chicago, also the host of the Gospel and Race podcast. And for the last few years, I've just been thinking about a space for us, a place where leaders of multi-ethnic organizations can come and discern the complexities of such ministry together. And it's hard to find, but we've made it happen, all right? So I want to introduce you to something called the Imago Leaders Network. It's a relationship network of mission-minded multi-ethnic leaders who will come together and discern the complexities of multi-ethnic ministry. How do we how do we plant churches faithfully in spaces that need multi-ethnic engagement, etc. But anyways, anyways, January 18th, I want to invite you to an informational. It's going to be at 7 p.m. virtually. You need to go to imagoleaders.com, register there. We'll send you all the information. And let's, let's hear some vision as to how this relational network can be uh, um, add value to what God is doing in your life and in your ministry and how you can add value to our lives and our ministry in Jesus name. I'll see y'all January 18th. Peace. Gospel and Race podcast, special podcast today that I'm so excited about because uh, we are honoring the legacy of Martin Luther King and his contribution to uh, American ecclesiology, to the civil rights movement, to the racial disparities of our country. And I, there's, there's one person I'm going to call. <laughs> there's one person I'm going to call that's Dr. Pastor Marshall Hatch. Y'all give it up. Pastor Hatch, welcome. Glad to be here, Pastor Come Greg on. Armstrong. I, thank you for the invitation. You no, it, it, thank you for being here, and you you know what you mean to me. And I mean, I've 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 already I've said this to you before. I labeled you a mentor. I know I'm. I know I'm never. I know I never come out and, and be. I know I never get to the west side like I should. But I'm like, that's my mentor. That's who I'm listening to. Um, you, I've known you since I was a little boy. I mm. mean, I'm a little little boy. My grandfather's church on the west side. We yeah. both have great west side history here yes. in Chicago, and so I've watched you all my life. And so coming back to Northern Seminary, you being a professor, working in Northern, it was just full circle for yeah, me. absolutely. And I just want to say thank you for being here as we absolutely. talk about MLK. Absolutely. Tell us what you, I, I, I got well, your bio and all that, well, but you know. Well, what people need to know is, you know, you casually mentioned your West Side roots. It's yeah. a lot more profound than that. <laughs> you know, his grandfather, your grandfather, Dr. McCall, Frank McCall, yes. pastored on the West Side, and he pastored in the season that Dr. King lived in the neighborhood where your mm. grandfather's church was in Londale. And so it's this incredible history. And of course, Dr. Wow. King lived in Chicago, had a net residence there in 1966 when he moved his movement from south to north. And it's then he becomes, you know, according to, you know, the historians, a national leader as opposed to a regional leader. So that that whole Chicago connection is a very important part of the King narrative. And then, of course, he becomes global you know, within a year as he opposes the Vietnam War. Yeah. And then he becomes almost 
eternal when he is literally slain as a prophet a year after that. So that's your right. grandfather's church yes. is right in that that neighborhood. And of course, we have a connection. Your grandfather's successor was a young man that I baptized and uh, deaconized him yeah. and then licensed him as a preacher and then installed him as a pastor over the years. And so we've got an incredible connection. In, oh, I love it. Anyway. And I'm walking in that lineage. Yeah. And the other powerful thing is that you are still leading, having seen some generations of my family and you're still doing the work. And now you're helping disciple me in what you witnessed all them years ago. That's powerful, we right? Together. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, and, 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 and your daughter, my daughter and you were we part of the gospel together. choir yeah. at Northern, which was the largest and the best gospel choir in the whole state of Illinois. Say it again. <laughs> <laughs> so powerful lineage. And, and I'm, I'm not going to pull up your bio, but if you can give us some bullet points, you, you've, you've got a long history of activism, pastoral ministry, presence, being a practitioner, being a scholar, an academic. Uh, name us some of the things that you've been a part of as a, as a preacher. You know, this coming first Sunday, well, which is in a few, uh, two mm -hmm. days from mm -hmm. now, uh, will be my 39th year as a pastor. Wow. So I started in Londale, yep. Commonwealth Baptist, 1985 at 26. And, mm -hmm. I, and I really came... You know, my dad was a pastor. I didn't want to preach. Yeah. And I and and he passed away in eighty one and I felt the burden. Yeah. And I came home in eighty two to preach. Hmm. And and by January of eighty five I was in my first church and wow. a small church. I was I was unanimously elected by all fifteen members. <laughs> <laughs> In 1985, you, know, you got the vote. <laughs> got the vote. So, but you know, it was it was um it was you know a um, community that I was a part of mm. that believed in me, and yeah. so you know I was there for eight or nine years, and then you know I've been at Pilgrim a little over 30 years in mm. West Garfield Park. Went to McCormick Theological Seminary, so I, I actually did my master's at Georgetown, mm -hmm. and then came home to preach, and then ended up going to McCormick from about 93 to 98. And so pastoring during that time, and of course we're doing, you know, community development. Yeah. And so uh, it's, I came home to do what I'm doing. And it's mm. amazing to me how, how God will really give you exactly yeah. what you desire. Yeah. Which is why you better be careful what you desire. Because mm. I remember not asking God for the biggest church or the I, I wanted uh, social justice uh, as as a ministry, but I wanted it organic, like a real yeah. congregation and church. Yeah. And I wanted longevity. Mm. And and I've learned. I know people that wanted the biggest building, yeah. and they got that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not so much of an asset these days, right? You right, know, right. but but is but God will give you what you ask for. So really, you know, it's been an incredible journey. And you mm. know, my wife and I have four children. We yeah. have five and a half grandchildren, one on the way, <laughs> and so it's been an incredible um, journey. So your work in social justice in Chicago, primarily. Yeah, you then joined forces. Um, with great activists yeah. from Chicago. Can you tell me about the work? Yeah, really mentored, uh, going back to about 99. So, you know, I was a, a young 
and uh, had just um, come to New Mount Pilgrim, which is in West Caulfield Park, mm-hmm. in about, uh, let's see, 93. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, I'd always kind of admired Adam Clayton Powell as a congressman, so I really did have political aspirations. Mm. And so, I, you know, I had this opportunity to run for a um, state representative. I had the congressmen and others came to me. They saw, you know, what they considered my potential. Yeah. And so I, I had just gotten to that church maybe four or five years. We were just about to pay off the mortgage and hadn't done it. It had been very destabilizing mm-hmm. for that congregation. Mm-hmm. And so I just felt God say no. Mm. And I was angry. I mean, I didn't like it. I felt stifled, you know. And so I I did. And I told the Lord, I said, well, I'm going to do something. And I applied for a sabbatical to Harvard in 99. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, uh, and, yeah, I had a great application. I had a Georgetown professor who was Port Laureate of Maryland who was a mentor of mine and a congressman and so on. And, I, you know, I got the, um, I mean, I got the fellowship yeah. with the faculty there. And so, you know, I remember my mentor, uh, Roland Flint, in, uh, at Georgetown, I was saying, oh, it's just a fellowship. It's not a big deal. He said, Marshall, anything at Harvard is a big deal. And mm-hmm. so, you know, it ended up being pretty big deal, honestly. And so, you know, I do that in the first part of 99. I'm at a revival in Cambridge, and there's this sister who used to come on locally here. Her name was Bishop Coletta Jackson, I think her name. She used to do the awakening on Saturday night, and she used to say, take the city. That was her. That was her. She was doing revival. I didn't miss an episode of Awakening. And I'm sitting in this church, and it's it's called the Massachusetts Avenue Baptist Church, even though it was now on New Hampshire Avenue in Cambridge. (laughs) And, and she's preaching this incredible sermon on Samson's consecration. And she's, and then she starts, you know, with, her, with great um, charismatic fanfare. She's throwing water. And no, nobody knows me. I'm sitting there, you know, with my three-priest green suit on. <laughs> and, she's, and water's dripping down my glasses. And I'm standing there getting the refreshing, you know. Yeah, yeah, she's yeah, you get it. refilling her pitcher and slinging it on folks. <laughs> And she said, this is a man in whom there's no guy, y'all. And she says, um, and and uh, something's going to happen for you by the end of this year. So this was like a charismatic, prophetic it was. Pentecostal. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Including, you know, a, a $77 offering at the end <laughs> that I gave because I believed. Yeah, yeah. Even yeah. though, you know, I saw a husband sit there as a guy with white shoes on. I figured, well, that's where my money goes. That's where it's going. <laughs> but I didn't care. You know, I'm so. You got a word. Yeah, right, I got a right. word. And that was in May. And that summer when I got back, uh, I had gotten a message, folks that were affiliated with Rainbow Push. And of course, Reverend Jesse Jackson was very big in mm. 99. And that he was looking for a place to preach on the west side because he was coming through to go somewhere else. And so I had him there. And by October, there was this relationship where I was preaching his birthday piece at Push. Mm. And then by November, he had this big campaign thing going on down in Dent and uh, Decatur. 
and it ended up almost an international story about these kids getting kicked out of school. And I ended up like a top lieutenant. By the end of the year, I was traveling. We went to we went to Israel in 2001, for example, right before 9-11. So you got elevated in this rainbow push world. It was such an incredible trip. Seven of us in this delegation, guests of the Jerusalem Council of Churches, met at the airport by Sharon Perez. At that point, J- Reverend Jackson was treated like head of state. Right, right. We go across Gaza. Next, we're meeting with Arafat with a boss on his side, and it's it's an incredible way to see the Holy Land. I had done the tourist thing the year before. Yeah. But, you know, that was my mentorship mm. as a local pastor. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Traveling with Reverend Jackson, yeah. you know, who kind of could always kind of, t- you know, figure out how to get him a free staff member <laughs> is to get a pastor <laughs> that pays his own way, right? Uh, and, but it was an incredible season of mentoring. Yeah. Yeah. And then over time, you know, we started our own organization, the Leaders Network, with yeah. some pastors, uh, West Side based, and we do a lot of stuff. Now I have a credit union that we just launched with uh, in a partnership with Great Lakes. And so, mm. and then my own uh, Sankofa Wellness Village right. in West That's Garfield right. Park is going to be a $50 million development that breaks ground in April. Uh, and so it's, um, you know, it's been. Mm. God giving you exactly what you asked for. And then that's the neighborhood that Dr. King organized in. That's where he organized. That's right. West so Garfield Park Line. Because we're Chicago. We're Chicago folks. Tell me about the implications of MLK coming through Chicago. Yeah. Right? Because it starts there, right? It, it for us, for, for our story. On the west side. On the west side. It starts there. Like, can we start there? And Dr. King it? organizes primarily on the west side, although he has these south side relationships. And those that know about black Chicago, there is a distinct disconnect between the south side and the west side. Yeah. The south side is multi-generational African-American. It's urbane. Uh, you know, it. You know, folks that have just been impactful in American history. They yeah. come from there. Louis Armstrong lived there. Jack Johnson lived there. Muhammad Ali lived there. Jesse Jackson lived there. John Johnson, the founder of Ebony. Je- I mean, it's yeah. the South Side. Yeah. The West Side, not so much. Mm-hmm. The later migrants from the South, that last part of the Great Migration. It's a little more country. Yeah. A little more connected to the rural uh, South, Mississippi, Arkansas, Tennessee. Yeah. And so, you know, that's the roots that we come out of. Right. Dr. King organizes on the West Side because Chicago is so locked down as a political fiefdom of old man Richard Daly that he organizes on the West Side because the black people on that side of town were sufficiently disconnected from the power dynamic mm. that he could organize there. So he, he could not that. organize on the South Side. So did he try to organize on the South Side? Yeah, he was invited by Al Raby, who was an incredible organizer because, you know, as African Americans came into the city, particularly on the West Side, instead of building schools, they had these... Um, sort of trailers that they were sending kids to and they call them Willis wagons because Willis was a superintendent. So Al Raby organized parents to talk about the disinvestment in black kids 
um, part of Chicago public school system. And that was part of the movement that brought Dr. King to Chicago because mm-hmm. a lot of it had to do with residential segregation right. and schools. And so he comes to Chicago and is based on the West Side because these are the newest arriving migrants. From the South. From the South. Oh, migrants. <laughs> migrants. Right. Migrants. Say that again, right? Right, right, right. From the South. Mm. And so, so, yeah. So he organizes on the West Side. Yeah, 1966. And where do we go from there? Well, you know, Dr. King is assassinated in 68. So in 66, he becomes like this national leader. Now, talking about segregation in the North, not yeah. just the South. Right. By 67, he opposes the war in Vietnam, gives the why opposed the war in Vietnam sermon at the Riverside Church in Manhattan in New York, yes. which is the Rockefeller Church. Yes. Which is sort of like the the paradigm, the Vatican of American Baptist mm, mm-hmm. Riverside Church mm-hmm. in New York. And of course, it's almost a year to the day he's assassinated. Mm, because of that, that, that ministry. That prophetic ministry and, and people who were close to him said, you know, you just signed your death warrant. Mm-hmm. He said, I know. He knew it. And, you know, if you ever want to just, like, work up a good cry on purpose, find that tape on YouTube of Dr. King trying to explain when everybody comes against him. The New York Times eviscerates him. Uh, other civil rights leaders try to save their hide, say you've, 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 you've dabbled, you've crossed the line, mm-hmm. you've done irreparable harm to the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. So he's isolated. His own people. Oh, Yeah. yeah. On all sides, mm-hmm. the black militants are calling mm-hmm. him, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> uh, delawed, you know, derisively, <laughs> and so and so he he uh, th- that 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 tape that that I'm always moved by is him trying to explain, yeah, why for him it was a matter of conviction hmm. that he and he says you did you see you didn't understand me, yeah, I tried to tell you. I was a preacher, mm-hmm. and I must listen to God, and I must testify that a Vietnamese baby has the same value as a baby in the United States. Yeah, so that, that globalist that, prophetic yeah. ministry, which is a uh, that's why I lean into King in yeah. terms of you know you know what I mean you know I pastor a multi ethnic church which you can't have a multi-ethnic church without talking about racial justice, right. disparity, right? Um, but King, King is like, King fits everybody. Like everybody's gonna use Martin Luther King weekend, every, white church, black church. He seems safe in a lot of spaces. Why is that? Is that because of his inclusion? Because you, he's reinterpreted. Yeah, yeah. Because he's not the real King. Yeah, right, right, right. You know, Cornel West calls it, he's been Santa Clausified. <laughs> you know, turned into sort of this endearing, I have a dream guy. Right, and so that's where, that's where I've seen like white evangelical churches say, oh, we're safe with King. I've seen other churches, we're safe with King. Who is the real King? Who is King to the church as a prophetic voice? Whoever has the courage to tell the truth 
which often has been the role of the black preacher mm-hmm. in America. I mean, because often the word of God comes from the bottom of empire. It comes from the bottom of empire in Egypt. Yeah. Comes from the bottom of empire in the exile. Mm. Comes from the bottom of empire under Roman occupation. And I think that the future testifies in the apocalypse, the word of God, the presence of God, the movement of God, the kingdom of God comes from the bottom of the power dynamic. Hmm. And so whenever you're looking for God, go to the bottom. Say it. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's why in, when you, you know, in seminary, what is the dynamic theology now is womanist theology, which is the black woman. Because who has less power than a black woman in the slaveocracy of America? Hmm. Who has no agency over her own body hmm. and when the slave trade was 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 disallowed in 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 the early 1800s and america began to interbreed to create uh the market for slaves mm-hmm. the black woman's womb became the economic engine of the american empire and <laughs> and and so no agency over her body so where would God be? Yeah. In that slave cabin. Mm. With that black woman whose rape is systemic and legal. Mm. Who has no agency, no humanity that anybody is bound to respect. Mm. Black or white man. And so... And here we are, you know, in the early part of the 21st century. And what theology has the most diamondism in our seminaries? That's the voice of black women mm. saying this is what it feels like. And particularly dark-skinned black women with yeah. the colorism, yeah. you see. Yeah. You can't understand Oprah Winfrey's phenomena until you understand colorism. Huh. <laughs> and where she came from, and when she came to Chicago, and what she encountered, not just in, in but in black communities, that colorism. Yeah. It was very real. It's a very real thing. And is so that's why the color is purple piece is so. Well, you know, of, it's part of racism. That's what I'm, that's you what know, I'm saying. It's the stratum of racism. If you, if you black, get back. If you brown, stick around. If you're white, you're all right. Mm. So the, the, the further you are away from the ideal of beauty and of ultimate humanity, the less human you are, the less agency you have as a human being when it comes to racism. Willie Jennings calls it glorified white bodies, mm. which mm. becomes yeah, glorified the white baseline yeah. for yeah. how we measure humanity. humanity. How we measure the value, value. of human is what makes sin, racism, sin. Because hmm. it devalues hmm. what is made in the image of God hmm. and, and makes that less than mm-hmm. some other glorified yeah. 
um, definition of humanity. So King is create, a Southern preacher. Mm -hmm. he, he begins a movement organically. What, what is he doing? Like for people, I, I th you know, you're right. We kind of stuff him in I Have a Dream and we've mm -hmm. kind of Santa Claus him. But organically, what is, what is King doing prophetically to address all of that that we just talked about? Well, you know, I think ultimately he he challenges everybody mm -hmm. with a vision of what he would eventually call beloved community. Would would you consider would you consider his approach multicultural? I think he yes. I mean, I, I, I you know I think that you know King to the dismay of some of those that were, you know, sort of on the radical part of, uh, uh, in the black community, the militant, mm -hmm. was above defining himself as a black man. Hmm. I mean, at my most human, I understand it. I don't see myself as a black man. I see myself as a human being. Mm -hmm. Now, I may be forced to live in a racialized, yeah, society that, and I have to respond to that. Yes, and I understand it, and I have to comprehend it, and I have to process it. But in my, in the depth of who I am, I'm a human being, hmm. and everybody else is, and none are no better, hmm. and all are beneath the cross, deficient, yeah, and in need of salvation. Uh, but, but so I think the king is, I think the king evolves. I think he starts in the black church as a son of the black church, literally as a prince of the black church. Yeah. Those of us that have been PKs, yeah, it was sort of like uh, the the biography of of Adam Clayton Powell, you know, that is um, that was done by public broadcasting, where uh, Roger Wilkins, Roy Wilkinson's son, sort of eulogizes. Adam Powell and says, as a as a as a a black man, mm. so light skinned, he could have passed for white, but he identified with right. the Negro. Yeah, but yet he's broken at the end. Hmm. And he talks about him being born as a pastor's son at Abyssinian Church, which at one time under Adam Powell Senior, the father, was the largest Protestant congregation in North America. Not the largest black church, the largest church in Harlem. And he's born into that. And so, you know, Wilkins says he's born as high as you can be born in the black community. Hmm. But yet even he is broken by the end. Wow. And so it, it, it's, it, there's an incredible psychological price that we, uh, that, that is exacted for those of us born, you know, in this empire that and, and that is colorized. So King begins to speak to the humanity. Oh yeah, oh yeah. As a gospel-centered preacher. Yeah. And he looks beyond. He has to address color because of the racial dynamics. Yeah. But he looks beyond that to say that there's a humanity that we're ignoring. Yeah, and I think he he was in stages of growth when you look at. Okay. You know, yeah. I'm a little disturbed. There's a there's a bio on King. Mm -hmm. uh, by a guy named Jonathan E.I.G. And we, you know, scheduled by the end of February to host him with a Jewish congregation and a, mm -hmm. and a white Protestant congregation 
uh, in in the in the West Corridor of Chicago. But I, I really am. My son and I have talked about it. Who's coming to Northern, by the way? Let's go. Yeah, let's go, Marshall. Uh, yeah, but but we, you know that we can't let King be taken from us because hmm. we understand him in ways. You know, when I read the biography, I said, okay, it's partially true. I don't know if the whole spirit of King is captured because you can't without understanding organically the black church. He's a product of that. And then he grows and he expands. Hmm. So you can see the succession. You can see the his, evolution his, of his, his scholarship. Yeah, his of his theology, thought. His thought. In, in the he's, movie. He's, well, he, yeah, he's actually pampered. He's a middle-class Negro. Hmm. King's family went to Europe for vacations on ship. So he's born at the top of the black aristocracy. So he's coming from a whole different vantage point. He had to learn. By the time he dies, he is the mentor to Stokely Carmichael, who becomes Kwame Ture. Yeah. He's trying to pastor and evangelize and mentor militants. <laughs> whose experiences is far from him. Right. And so he is he's he's undergoing a spiritual transformation. That's what you have to know when you're looking at. He's undergoing he's he does the kitchen table uh conversion that I used to teach it. I used to teach it as the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which yeah. what ain't it's really more charismatic than it is Baptist, you know. Yeah, yeah. But it's kind of when one is baptized in purpose, mm. and then there's no looking back. Yeah. And so that happens when King's house is bombed in um, in in, uh, in in Montgomery, and he's at the kitchen table, and he tells it, and he uses it in the sermons. That, you know, he couldn't call his daddy. He couldn't call his mama. Uh, you know, he was under threat. Mm-hmm. They threatened to kill his family. He, he gets this call. He said, it's, it, he said, the voice said, N-word, if you don't get out of town in three days, we're going to blow your head off. Now, see, this is 1954. Hmm. And so he says he sits at the table and tries to drink coffee, and that didn't help him. And he remembers, you know, he can't call his daddy. And he says that's really when he encountered God in a way that was exclusive of the pampering he had grown up as a as a mm. preacher's son. Mm. And he embraces and he closes that, you know, that that narrative out with our uh I've seen the lightning flashing and he promised never to leave me. Yeah. And it's almost at that point there's this baptism of the spirit and he follows this path wherever it goes. Hmm. Now the book Hampton Sides called Hellhound on this trail is the one that takes you, I think it's close into the psychic of King mm-hmm. that he really offers himself 13 years after that incident and declares, because remember this is one of the most famous people in the world I know it's hard for these mega pastors to understand. Yeah. But he has no bodyguards. <laughs> he has no armor bearers. 
he becomes this international symbol of nonviolence. So he can't have armed protection. It, it would be a contradiction. It'd be a contradiction. And then he says, you know, to himself, his state of mind, because he'd been so maligned, was that and hounded by the FBI and hounded by, you know, yeah. by assassins. Maybe if they kill me, it will energize the movement. The very definition of a martyr. Hmm. No bodyguards, no protection, and your own government surveilling everything and harassing you. And your only office is a Baptist preacher. Huh. I still try to wrap my mind around that. <laughs> your only real job is the co-pastor of the Ebenezer Baptist Church. That's all you. That that's ain't you even got. the largest church in that community. It's not. <laughs> I preached at the Second Baptist Church up the street years ago. It was the first church in the South to have air conditioning off of Auburn Avenue. Mm. And then the Wheat Street Church. Now, Ebenezer wasn't even the largest church in its neighborhood. What does that say, though, about the power of the gospel? The power of the, I mean. That he's, a, he's an associate pastor, preacher from the South. The entire government is surveilling him. Yeah. And he's preaching a nonviolent reconciliation. Well, you know, it, 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 it's, so, it's, so, it's so inspiring for mm. anybody that really wants to follow Jesus. Mm. Because... I'm convinced, reading everything I can read and every, every you know, as a, a kingologist. Yeah. You know, I was 10 years old when he was assassinated, altered, captivated by the mountaintops mm. at 10 years old. Yeah. And there's a whole generation of us called in the ministry from the king example. But I can tell you this. He saw himself following Jesus to the cross. Mm. That's how he sees himself. Mm. And 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 uh whatever you know my particular journey is, that's that's what I want hmm. want to be. What what and to live that way. Whatever that means. Yeah, you and you may have answered this already, but you know, today, you know, this day where we are now. What does King walk into our churches and say? What, what is he saying? Because I imagine, I imagine it would be a lot of what he's already prophetically uttered. However, things are, things are still dark, right? Well, I, 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 I tell you, uh, I know he would be, I mean, this, I mean, what will King say? That's always the proverbial question, right? Yeah. The, the world is on the verge of world war. Hmm. And that's just the truth. Hmm. Before seminary, my first degrees were political science. And my first master's degree is government, Georgetown mm -hmm. University. I just want to go to DC. Yeah, yeah. At a time when, you know, the conservatives really ran the Department of Government at Georgetown. So, you know, defense policy, geopolitics, that, that was a background I, that I have. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I could tell you we're on the road to world war. 
Hmm. And as one who comes into the church from the outside, I don't consider myself an insider because hmm. of the way I came into ministry, really. Right. right. Um, I'm amazed at how detached <laughs> the church is yeah. from the reality that we're going into world war. Hmm. It's sort of like, you know, studying King and studying Bonhoeffer. Mm-hmm. Why do we still look at these people? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It wasn't because of their priestly ministry. It's because of their prophetic ministry. Yeah, to government. Yeah, and, to, yeah. and we're a world at war. Have we lost our voice to government? To, in many ways, yes. Mm-hmm. But that's always been true. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I'm a, a minority of the of of the church and church leaders supported King. A minority supported Bonhoeffer. Mm-hmm. A minority supported Jesus, who preached that real prophets are slain. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. We don't want that smoke. Now. We don't want that. <laughs> we building churches and we want to, you know. Because I think about I think about mega pastors mm-hmm. who are counsel to presidents. Yeah. And political figures. Are we then have we then lost prof- have we then not entered into like true prophetic edge or we have have we kind of like walked into the demise of capitalism and and we've just kind of assimilated ourselves into? Yeah, I, I mean, I think there's a real reckoning going on. Yeah, okay. I mean, one of the things that's very interesting to me is uh, post pandemic. Yeah. When you, you one of the narratives on social media, you know, in, in addition to being in an era when everything is. Is critiqued. Mm-hmm. I mean, it can be redefined and it's open to critique. Yeah. And there's, you know, no automatic, you know, genuflect to authority or institutions. Yeah. You have to earn whatever respect you're going to have. Right. Uh, the narrative on social media is we're going toward, this is post-church. Hmm. It's like Europe. It's post-Christian. Mm-hmm. And people are bragging. I don't go to church anymore. It's a brag, right? I don't need church. We found out we don't need it, right? Right. And then plus, look at it. Yeah, it's all a fraud anyway. A but the phony. evidence is there. Yeah, they can point to it. Yeah, they can. yeah. Mm-hmm. How do we redeem that? What? Well, you know, I, you know, I really the pandemic was such a revival for us in the setting I'm in. Of course, I'm in, I'm at the bottom of the empire over there. Yeah. Uh, and so it was really cleansing. Because, mm. you know, I have a traditional Baptist church for the most part. Mm-hmm. And, you know, but, you know, since the pandemic, nobody worries about who could stand at the pulpit no more. Because mm-hmm. at one time, wasn't nobody in there. Nobody was there, yeah. <laughs> uh, or what somebody got on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or are we gonna have a banquet? None of that never comes mm-hmm. up. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful. <laughs> I mean, we just do ministry. You know, yeah. we had we had the George Floyd riots on the same commercial strip that were the MLK riots, mm. half a block from my church. Mm. My church smelled like smoke. Mm. 
and was untouched in the George Floyd riots one and two mm-hmm. in 2020. Uh, and so the grocery store was was burned, and so we went into food, uh, you know, ministry. We, you know, that's how the saints start collecting. We okay, we're not in the building. Meet on the parking lot. We're giving out food. And so we came through pandemic like that, and then part of our my offer ministry to young men who are, were never going to shelter in place. So they're doing devotional every day. So they never stop, and they never stop getting saved. They never stop getting baptized. And so that kind of ministry caused our church to have a certain dynamism that thrived in you know in the post pandemic world, in the pandemic and the post pandemic world. So I, I don't know how churches do without that kind of, you don't have to go looking for ministry. Mm. You know, just, it so comes to you. A part of the revival is what you've already stated, is that you're going to find Jesus at the bottom of the empire. Yeah, and authenticity. Authenticity. Is what, is, is our right. only hope now. Right, that's all we got. That's all we got, it's uh, Jesus. Right. Right. Yeah. Let me ask you this question a little bit different in light of Martin Luther King. What is your you you are uh, you've been a West Side pastor, an activist, a voice, a leader. What is your view of the multi-ethnic church? You know, I I think that um, I, you know, I don't I don't know if it, it should be labeled as that, you know, your church is one of the few congregations that I'm aware of that is considered multi-ethnic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Black With African-American leadership. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm trying to think of another one. I got a couple. You probably don't know. I just don't know. Them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it, that's a very unusual, because now you've been able to not only have a multi ethnic congregation but you've been able to infuse probably some of the best of that black christian tradition that comes from the bottom of empire yeah 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 yeah. to not be a marginal part of the congregational life right but to be a part of the central narrative yes it's not a black church so it doesn't have to be exclusive narrative right right but it, by definition, because it's African-American leadership, it is a central part of that narrative. Mm, mm-hmm, Whereas opposed mm-hmm. if we say multicultural the way we often see it, right. which is white leadership and then a sort of a black add-on, you yep. know, sort of the minstrel show of yep. the music and maybe some, you know, some emotionalism or so yeah. on, a little flavor, yeah. but, but it's marginal. Right. What and I the really, power is really not shared. Right. Well, what, what, one thing I'm passionate about is the richness of the black church experience mm-hmm, mm-hmm. has been um, stereotyped in a way, almost like a sitcom mm-hmm. to white people. Mm-hmm. But having, if you have never stepped in the experience of the richness of the of black ecclesiology, mm-hmm. and we consider ourselves multi-ethnic, so you're right. We don't say we're a black church, mm-hmm. but the elements of mm-hmm. what comes from a West Side black church experience, 
you can't, I don't think you can ever beat that. Mm-hmm. I don't think you can, and this is me, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? But but when I look at other cultures that experience the richness of the organ or the hymn or the call and response or a black preaching experience, whatever mm-hmm. the case may be, I feel like so many people missed out on that mm-hmm. because of the because of or the polarization. Or the seriousness, you know, really. Yeah. Because people from the bottom of the American empire, we call black. Black is at the bottom. And I have a Jewish friend who's a great guy, and he said to me once, he said, you know, Pastor, we Jews owe you black people such a debt of gratitude. He said, because when we got here, the bottom was already occupied. Oh, man. And when you knew what they were fleeing from Europe, yeah, you understand the profundity of that. Hmm. So black is the bottom. Mm. And it's still the bottom. Mm-hmm. It's so that, you know, the way the only way to get agency is to be an honorary white. Yeah. Whatever that is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh but 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 um the 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 richness of the black church tradition that comes from the bottom is because people have nothing else. Which is, you know, how you teach intro to the black church studies. You have to first understand these people have nothing else coming out of slavery but hmm. the church. Nothing else. So this is not about. There is no black. Right. This is not about style. No, no. Texture. This, what this is, is it, about pop. You want me to tell you what it really is? What's that? It's taking Jesus seriously because that's all you have. Mm. Mm. And there's, there's no other example you can point to than what you saw at Mother Emmanuel when eight people were killed on that yeah. on that uh, Father's Day. But yeah. you, you didn't see anything. You never seen the families in less than 24 hours say, well, I know we have to forgive you. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it angers a lot of black people. Mm-hmm. And I've been on black radio where they say, we tired of having to forgive people. And I said, you know, because white people would never. And I said, you know, that almost makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. Except white people are not my standard of humanity. Mm. You know, Jesus is. Yeah. And that's where those southern blacks were coming from. Because they come out of a tradition that it's not like Jesus is a fairy tale. Right. They have to take Jesus completely serious. Nothing else. Nothing else. And another distinctive is, is Jesus before resurrection. Yeah. That is black religion. Because the after resurrection doesn't help me necessarily get through what I got to deal with. Mm. I need a fellow sufferer. Mm. I need, I need, I need to stay by the cross. Yeah. I, I can't move too fast to the to the tomb. I've got to let me linger because the beat down is what's capturing my imagination and my spirit based on what I'm going through. That's what I'm relating That's to. That's black religion. That's good. It's that rooted in Christ. You yeah. know, I preached that Calvin. I don't know if they really got it at Calvin University because I didn't get invited back. <laughs> but I was trying to say... They gave me rooted in Christ. I said, in this black church tradition, 
is rooted in Jesus Christ before the resurrection mm. as a fellow sufferer huh. because of the oppression. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's amazing, you know, I, I, when I grew up in the church, we didn't really talk about Christ that much. Right. We talked about Jesus. Right. Right, <laughs> <laughs> you know, who understands? Because Christ seems a little sanitized and a little, like you know, privileged. <laughs> but Jesus, we know what he. Oh man, I my father used to have a member boy. She, I used it as illustration several times, and and you know, back in the old church, your grandfather, they never preached without going through the passion, Never. the agony. Not once. It always, no matter what this, what this sermon was about, it always end up, cause you remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah <laughs> they whipped yeah. them all, all night long, you know. <laughs> I mean, you know, but, 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 so my dad used to, you know, do the, the rehearsing of the passion every, and it was, uh, it was a member, her name was Miss Baker. Mm -hmm. Light-skinned lady, and boy, I remember as a little boy. And then somewhere when Jesus is rising and falling with the cross, she jump up and say, Lord, help Jesus. <laughs> Somebody help Jesus. Somebody. <laughs> he need help. Yeah. You know, because that's what, that's what the bottom of empire latches mm. on to. And it's, and it's why the future of the church is apparently in, this, in the, in the uh, southern hemisphere. Mm -hmm. It's where the, the former colonies where people have suffered that the church is exploding because there's something about God with us, Emmanuel, mm -hmm. that speaks to the human condition, particularly at the bottom of, of, of power dynamics. That's so good. Well, I, for, for Christmas, I've done this twice already. I preached a quote from you. Mm. You you said this quote when you spoke at the Northern Seminary uh, graduation two three years ago, and you said you will find always find Jesus in the lowly places. In the lowly places, and I t I give you credit always, but I, but but I took that thing. Man. And I appreciate I, that. I don't know what it is about that line for me. And you've expounded upon it today, but it's just something. It helps my congregation understand the significance of gospel mission. Yeah. Because at the end, when we're talking about race, when we're talking about injustice, it's really about the march. It's really about the mm -hmm. bottom of the empire. Mm -hmm. And when we've seen racism, when we've seen segregation, it's because the empire has intruded upon and negated the marginal. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And race, I mean, the victims, one of the, one of the, one of the pronounced victims of race is white people. Mm. Because race is used to make people feel better than they ought to feel <laughs> about what they're experiencing. Yeah, yeah. And so <clears throat> literally people vote against their own interests mm. based upon some social construct of 
at least I'm white. Right. And it becomes very manipulative and a way to divide people. Yeah. You know, sort of a William Barber who's kind of gone around with his his um his his movement on the poor people and so on, but he mm-hmm. talks about fusion and he and and there's this mythology of right after slavery that there was this coming together of black folk and white folk that was like the possibilities of what America could have been. Hmm. You know, uh, if people would have just seen the commonness, you know what I mean? Like America is, the book is called Prophet of Freedom. It's a great book, a guy named mm-hmm. Brinkley mm-hmm. Uh, on Frederick Douglass. Mm-hmm. So when, when it comes to America, Frederick Douglass is the real founding father. Because hmm. he's the first one that really visions America as a place where all the tired and the poor from all over the planet can come. Could come. And there's room at the cross for you. Mm. You know, there's a place for you. Everybody. You can make a contribution here. Yeah. You yeah. can be judged on the your content of your character. Yeah. Yeah. On what you have to offer. Yeah. That is Frederick Douglass's vision of America. That's powerful. Not George Washington. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you say as we celebrate Martin Luther King, what do you want to say to the church as it relates to how do how do we recognize and how do we properly how do we properly appreciate his contribution I, to the church? There's always the struggle and particularly, you know, in America because uh, we've, we've turned nationalism into the civic religion, hmm. jingoism, really, and racism. Uh, and so the challenge is always to allow for Jesus to define Jesus' self instead of us having a presupposed definition. Because mm-hmm. I wrestle sometimes. I, I just don't know if we got the same Jesus all the time. Right, right. You know, because I, I, don't, I don't know how a person can follow Jesus of Nazareth and come to some of these conclusions of the worthlessness of other people <laughs> or the lack of empathy or the lack of compassion uh, but I mean, you know, I don't, you know, I don't think get anywhere questioning people's, you know, faith. But I, but I just, you know, I just wonder if we really know Jesus of Nazareth <laughs> and not Jesus of Norway, <laughs> and somehow always trying to get back to Jesus of Nazareth, like Howard Thurman challenges us, Jesus yeah. and the disinherited, to get back to Jesus of Nazareth without the baggage of European Christianity and that history, mm-hmm. which is, you know, about the creation of Europe as much as it is about the faith. Mm-hmm. It's how the faith help Europe create itself. Mm-hmm. And in some ways co-opted faith, which is why there had to be a reformation. Mm. But little Roman Catholicism wasn't the only Christianity on the planet. There's an Eastern church. And then the oldest organized Christians in the world were probably evangelized by 
Mark mm-hmm. in Ethiopia mm-hmm. and southern Egypt. That Coptic church is older than Rome in its organization. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, um, it's really kind of, you know, what really allowing, allowing you know, the, the Lord to self-define as opposed to us trying to create a God in our own image is what is always a challenge for organized religion. You know, part of the problem with being the church is we read the scriptures wrong. Mm. And we always imagine ourselves as the disciples. See, we the disciples. Not once you're organized, you may not be. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. once you organize religion, you might want to be challenged to find out, are we the Pharisees? Are we the oppressors? Are we the Pharisees? Yeah. Yeah. Organized religion. Yeah. Nothing wrong with being organized. Yeah. As long as the organization is designed to carry out the mission. Hmm. But when the organization in and of itself becomes like, you know, we're not the arbiters of of the kingdom. Mm-hmm. The church is only good when it is useful as a vehicle of the kingdom. Hmm. It could be the kingdom, but it might not be. <laughs> and God, if you look very closely, has the ability to operate with or without us. Man. There's an incredible Man. spirituality going on with a lot of these young folks that, uh, I mean, in error, because, you know, everybody yeah. needs a pastor. Right. But there's a hunger. I can tell you that. God's going to take In the worst that. places. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In the worst places. And like, you know, you know, some of the work that I've seen going on in our community with some of the ministries, whether we have, I mean, it, it just reminds me of first century Christianity where you got these young men in these life and death do or die circumstances. Hmm. And they're evangelizers. Some of them have, you know, backgrounds in incarceration and they, they say, and uh, the narrative that seems to have so much import is mm. if you want to save your life, get in this kingdom. But they don't mean your proverbial life. They mean right. your life on the west side. Right. <laughs> where right. you could be a statistic. Right. Right. You need to get in this kingdom. So you can be saved. So you can be saved. Literally. This is too good, Pastor. <laughs> hey, I appreciate you coming on. I'm glad to do this it. This was so glad rich for here. me and for everybody. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, who's going to watch this. So, you know, you're going to find Pastor Hatch, pastor on the West Side, 39 years, activist, a leader, also a professor. And, I, you know, we're going to talk more about this moving forward, but we're going to be launching at Northern Seminary yes. a Black Studies degree. Um, that uh, you're going to have a heavy part in leading. And I'm excited about that because we need to learn black ecclesiology in order to better understand what God is doing in the overall church. So um, thank you, Pastor Hatch. Thank you for having me and for what you you do. Thank you. And for your forward look and and being on the cutting edge. We appreciate how God uses you in this season. Thank you, sir. Gospel and Race Podcast, we're out. (laughs) 